once again, we're in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you all. Great morning so far. We had a Princess Bride reference and a class on, I mean, we're only 15 minutes in. This is, this is awesome. Well, I, um, <laughs> I'm glad we have a little comic relief. There's very heavy passage today uh, that we'll be looking at, and uh, I, f- I was feeling that even this morning as I woke up. It's like, oh man, this is heavy. This is, this is serious stuff, but um, really good stuff that we're going to talk about today. We are in this series on the life of Moses, seeing, seeing our God through the eyes of Moses, and we're spending two weeks really talking about the, the redemption out of Egypt. And so last week, we looked at the 10 plagues as a whole, and really the, the the big reason, the, the reason behind the reason of what God was up to, which was, then you will know that I am the Lord, that my name may be praised, not just in Israel, not just in Egypt, but, but among all the nations, that God is telling a story that is ultimately about his own glory and name, and we saw that last week. And today, then, we're going to center in on this final plague, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, and especially the, the Passover um, sacrifice and celebration that we see there. And so really, I mean, this today kind of gets right at the very heart of the gospel. 
And um, it's, it's a bloody heart. It's a dark, uh, mysterious, uh, messy uh, redemption. Uh, and we live in a dark, bloody, messy world. And in, in some ways, I, I don't fully understand it sometimes, but the, 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 the messiness of, of God's solution matches the messiness of this world and the messiness of our lives in a way that, that just echoes is true to me. And so we're going to look at this this morning and jump right in. And I want to see what God was up to uh, back then, thousands of years ago, and then what God is up to through Jesus, his son. And we'll get to celebrate communion for the first time in a while. I'm so excited to do this today. Yes. So um, let me just jump in. And I, I just want to think about this final plague and just, you know, sit with this rea- reality for a second. Let me read verse 12 again. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, okay? I'm going to strike down the firstborn males of every house. And then if you would go, go down to uh, verse 29 of chapter 12, so that's God predicting it. Now it actually happens. Let me read the description here. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Okay, I just want you to just imagine that, right? This nation, you go to sleep. After all these crazy nine plagues, you go to sleep. And every household wakes up, and a firstborn son is dead. And there's, there's just mourning and crying throughout the whole nation. And I just want to sit with that heavy reality and, and kind of ask these questions of, like, how do we make sense of a God who, who does that, right? And, I mean, you can think of there's all sorts of Egyptians that we would kind of, they, they could, some pretty innocent Egyptian families out there that, you know, they just got caught up in this big thing and their, their kids had to die too. How do, how do I understand a God like that? And I want to talk through that a little bit today and, and ultimately bring us to uh, what the heart of the gospel is. So last week I gave us a few explanations. Um, we look and if you go back to verse 12, what I, I read a second ago, right, God says, um, I will bring judgment on all the gods of, of Egypt. And what we see here is God not so much judging the Egyptian people, right? He is systematically dismantling the various gods of Egypt, revealing himself as the, the one true God. And we talked about that last week. I also talked about last week how Egypt was a profoundly unjust empire, right? And chapter one begins with a pharaoh saying, all Hebrew boys must be slaughtered. We're going to kill them. We're going to eradicate them. And so this 10th plague is, is actually perfect justice, right? It is, it is absolute justice being brought onto this Pharaoh and his empire. So we talked about that last week, but I, I think there's something even, even maybe um, deeper going on than just those two explanations that I want to try to get at, because it really has to do with the fundamental human condition. It has to do with our lives today. So... Um, let me just talk you through my process this week of trying to make sense of this God who does this sort of thing and some of the things I noticed in this passage. So first thing I noticed is uh, this theme of how God is totally indiscriminate with the Egyptians in terms of who dies, meaning 
there's no discrimination. Every firstborn male dies of every household, right? I just read it in verse 29. Think about this. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, okay? Indiscriminate, from the highest high to the lowest low. If you go back to chapter 11, go back to chapter 11 for a second, uh, he makes this exact same point. Verse 5 of chapter 11, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, now listen to this description, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill. Really interesting. Everyone's going to experience this regardless of status, regardless of wealth, regardless of privilege, reputation, right? There's something that they all have in common from highest high to the lowest low that they're going to suffer this, this plague from, right? Nobody escapes this. There's no distinction except, of course, there's one distinction, and it's the distinction of God's covenant people, Israel, right? So look again, I'm in chapter 11. Uh, we have verse 5, right? There's no distinction. But then look at verse 6. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again, but among the Israelites... Not a dog will bark at any person or animal, okay? You'll wake up in the morning, there'll be cries all over the place, but in the Hebrew homes, silence, calm, peace, right? Verse 7, the second half of it. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is no distinction, right, among the highest, high, low, so they all share something in common, but I'm going to make a distinction between Egypt and my covenant people, Israel, okay? And last week I talked about that, that God is making a distinction between his people. And remember the first three plagues, God starts unleashing chaos in Egypt, but everybody experiences the first three plagues. Remember that? Even the, even the Israelites, the, the blood, the, the frogs, the gnats, everyone's getting it. And then beginning in plague four, God says, now I'm going to make a distinction between my people and Egypt. And so then you have the Hebrews watching further chaos unleashed, but it's not touching you anymore. The boils aren't hitting your skin. The, your livestock aren't dying. There's, there's darkness everywhere else, but there's light. And you're coming to know, whoa, there's a power at work. There's, there's a mighty hand who sees us, who knows us, and is making a distinction between us. Yes? Okay? But what's interesting to me is that in the 10th plague, God asks his people to do something in order that that distinction may be made known. In the first set of plagues, he doesn't tell, you don't have to do anything. I know who you are. I know my people. I see you. I hear you. I will make this distinction myself. You don't have to do anything. But this time, on the 10th plague, I'm going to ask you to do all sorts of things, Okay? to make this distinction clear. And I want to I think through, why does he do that? So he asks them to do all these things, right? And you, you heard the story read. Here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to take a, a one-year-old sheep or goat, male, from your flock, uh, blameless, flawless, uh, no defects, this, your best one, okay? And I want you to set him aside for four days. And on the fourth night at twilight, I want you all to go out and I want you to slaughter these firstborn lambs. I want you to slit their necks. I want you to kill them. And I want you to take a hyssop branch, and I want you to dip it in the blood of this lamb, and I want you to wipe the blood on your door, doorpost. What a crazy thing, right? 
you've never heard of this before, right? Sides and top of your doorpost. Then I want you to go inside. I want you to roast the lamb. Uh, and I want you to stay inside. Keep the door shut. And I want you to eat the lamb, okay? If, if, if a lamb is too big for your family, invite your neighbors over so that you can finish off this lamb, okay? You're going to have some bitter herbs. You're going to have some unleavened bread. And um, you're going to eat this lamb inside. The, the lamb that's blood is outside on the doorpost. And I want you to keep the door closed. And I want you to stay inside. And I'm going to come through this night and destroy the firstborn males of every household. But when I see the blood of the lamb that's on your doorposts, I will pass over that house. That's where we get the name, right? Obviously, Passover. And so what's interesting to me is why this ritual, right? The, the other plagues, he doesn't ask them to do anything. And he could have just as easily done it that way too, right? He, could have, he knows who the Israelites are. He could have just said, 10th plague's coming, and everyone wakes up, and the Israelites are fine, and the Egyptians have all lost firstborn. Why this whole ritual? And I want you to look at verse 13 of our chapter, chapter 12, verse 13. Here's what he says. Very interesting. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Okay? Speaking to the Israelites, God says the blood will be a sign for you. Now, we know it's also a sign for God, right? When I see the blood, I'll pass over. But here he's saying... The blood is a sign for you. There's something I want you to learn about this blood. And what I think it is, is essentially this. Israelites, actually, there is no distinction between you and the Egyptians. This indiscriminate kind of way that I'm going to do this, uh, there's nothing different about you and the Egyptians. Meaning there's nothing different about your character or your worthiness or anything about you that I might look at and say, this shouldn't happen to you. The only difference between you and the Egyptians is you have blood on your doorposts, and they don't. Inside the house, there's no distinction. Outside the house, a lamb has been slaughtered for you. Its blood has been shed for you. Its life has been lost. And it is there on your doorframe, and that is the sign for you. That's what distinguishes you from the Egyptians. And as the story plays out, as we read the rest of Exodus, it will become very clear that there is no distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites, right? Up till now, they have been kind of like victims of oppression. We should feel horrible for them. They've, been, they've had, you know, atrocities committed on them. But as we continue to read the story, we realize these are not just victims, right? These people have all the sins of the Egyptians, idolatry, injustice, grumbling, complaining, disobedience time and time again, right? There's really no difference between them and the Egyptians. What's different on this night is there's blood on their doorposts, and that, that blood will be a sign to them. But I would, would argue they were that night in as much mortal danger as the Egyptians were, except for the blood, Okay? So if you would let me, I'm going to take you on a little tangent for a second, and hopefully this makes sense of why I'm taking you on this journey. Um, I was just thinking through this, and I was going back in the story, back the book before to, to Genesis, and thinking through God's story. And um, you can decide if this is good thinking or not afterwards. Um, so I just, I just went back to the beginning of the story. The, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, right? And you remember the, the story. They're placed in, in Eden. And God gives them a command. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So he's saying death is the consequence of this disobedience. And we know the wages of sin is death, right? So death is, is a holy creator's, creator's perfectly appropriate response to sin and disobedience, right? Now, it's interesting. They eat it, and they don't die, do they? And so most scholars would say, well, God's not a liar, so they must have died somehow. They, there was a spiritual death that took place, and I think that's ac- absolutely right. But I would also say, in light of God's promise, that means that every single moment they had of their lives after eating that fruit was an act of sheer grace and forgiveness, was an act of not following through on this threat, right? They were on borrowed time, we could say, for the rest of their lives. Their lives were forfeit. They'd separated themselves from the source of life, and yet God in his mercy enables and allows them to continue to live. And if you know how the story goes on, right, they, they eat the fruit and they're, they're experiencing their, their sin and their brokenness, and, and they try to cover themselves up, right? They take fig leaves and try to uh, this, we've, we're ashamed now. And the resolution of the story is God does something for them. Do you remember what he does for them? He covers them through sacrifice, right? He takes animals, apparently, and slaughters them, apparently. We don't hear that part of the story. And provides animal skins that cover them in ways that they could never cover themselves with fig leaves. On borrowed time, <laughs> but covered through sacrifice. So that's the first human beings. Then when, when you go to the first um, Israelite, the first Hebrew is the story of Abraham, right? Abraham and Sarah and God's wonderful gift of this son Isaac who is promised for many years and finally comes and it's this beautiful thing and he grows into a, a, a young boy, however old he is. Uh, and then in Genesis 22, um, God asks Abraham to do something that to us seems unthinkable. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you, okay? Now, we hear that, and we think, that's, that's immoral. That's illogical. Why would, you, why would you do that? But what's interesting to me is in the story, um, Abraham doesn't actually argue with God. And a- Abraham doesn't have a problem arguing with God in other places, like he'll, he's like, he, but you don't hear him saying, God, this is irrational. God, this is totally inappropriate. You, you have no right to do this. And, and I don't know, but what I wonder is he understands that what this is, is the holy creator God cashing in on what's his right, really, as the creator, which is that all of your lives are forfeit, right? You, sin, the wages of sin is death, and... Um, your son belongs to me. Your son has always belonged to me. In fact, you all, your whole family belongs to me. Um, and now I'm cashing in on that. I have every right to do that in light of the human situation. And I think Abraham kind of gets that. But then, of course, we know the story. What happens is God, you know, in the last minute says, no, no, I'm not going to harm the boy. And what does God do? Right? He provides, right? Uh, sacrifice, right? There's a, there's a, a ram just so happens to get its horns caught in a thicket nearby. I don't know if that's ever happened in the history. Maybe that happens for rams a lot. I don't know. But it did for this one. Clearly a provision, provision of God, and, and the ram is offered instead of Isaac. A substitute sacrifice is offered, right? And so here you have, I think, this plague in Egypt. God 
right? Calling on the firstborn sons of the empire. And I guess my, what I'm trying to get at, it seems to me that how do we understand a God who does this? One answer I said at the beginning is God is judging the gods of Egypt. That's true. God is bringing justice on an unjust empire. But I think there's something deeper than that. And it is simply the creator's right to cash in on what is actually already his because of the human situation that is indiscriminate. Jews, Gentiles, Egyptians, everybody. God has the perfect right to do this in light of the human situation. The wages of sin or death is death. But, right, here God says, but for the blood. A substitute can be offered. The blood of the lamb in place of the blood of your son. So God is doing now for the entire nation of Israel what he did for Abraham, singularly with his son, Isaac. But there is no distinction, right, except for the blood. <laughs> That's the distinction. And just to finish this off, there's a really interesting thing. thing. Um, God says in chapter 13, the very next chapter, after this happens, God says this, "'Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal.'" All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So here's what God is saying. All of your firstborn sons, which kind of represent the family and its future in ancient cultures, your firstborn sons belong to me, okay? They come out of the womb belonging to me. You can redeem them. You can buy them back from me through sacrifice. You can offer a sacrifice at the temple, and you can have your son back. But they come out belonging to me. Okay, I'll tell you, as a young parent, that's not how we think today, right? We think these kids come out belonging to me, and over time I have to learn that they're actually the Lord's kids, right? We, okay, I've got to let them go, but no, God says, no, no. They come out belonging to me. Their lives are forfeit, they belong to me, except you can redeem them. And I guarantee you, every Israeli, Israelite family redeemed their firstborn sons. You can purchase them through sacrifice. The blood, all that to say, is a sign for you. Are you still with me? Okay. That we're no different us Israelites, I'm thinking, that we owe our lives to God, that the wages of sin is death, but God has provided a substitute. There's blood on our doors, and that is our protection. That is our safety. That is our shelter from the destroyer who's sweeping through this nation. And just imagine being the Israelite families that night, going to sleep in fear, wondering what's going to happen and waking up, and all your kids are safe and sound, right? Your boys, your girls, everyone's all still intact. And there's, there's wailing throughout the, we the rest of the empire. Crazy experience. <laughs> this is the story of redemption. I said this is, it's a bloody, messy, dark, and very beautiful story, Okay? So, almost 2,000 years after this event, after this first Passover, God sends His Son, His only 
firstborn son into the world, right? And the story is played out fully in the person of Christ. Here's his baptism with John the Baptist, right? And do you remember what John says when he sees Jesus come into the water? He says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the Passover Lamb who will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Jesus lives his life, of course. We'll celebrate this in in a month or two during Easter um, Jesus' final night uh, is a Passover meal, right? This meal that, that Israel was in, uh, commanded to, to celebrate, Jesus is celebrating with his disciples that night, and he's infusing it with all kinds of new meaning that centers around what he's about to do on the cross, not just what the lamb's blood was doing back in Egypt. And then, of course, later the next day, while the Passover lambs are being slaughtered, During the Passover feast in Israel, Jesus, the Lamb of God, goes to the cross and sheds his blood for God's people. And I want to just read to you a couple verses, okay, that talk about what's happening on the cross. I know this is old hat for a lot of us, but let me just read them to you, and I'm not even going to comment on them. Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And one more, Romans 3. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the purchase, right? The redemption that came by Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Okay, this is the, the dark and beautiful mystery at the center of the universe where you have a God who is a God of holiness, right? Perfection without a trace of evil, right? Saying, you eat of this, you die that day. Sin, the wages of sin is death. And yet you have this God who's a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace. And the cross is his really remarkable plan to bring all of that together in a solution for his people. Okay? And what we need, and I'll kind of, I want to round out my comments with this, with this comment. <laughs> we need a really robust view of God to make sense of all of this. And, and I, amen, thank you. And I, I, I look at some views of God out there right now, and they're really simplistic and overly simplified. But here's what we need. We need a God who is first the all-powerful, perfect and holy creator of all things. Again, as I just said it, without a trace of sin, he is a God who can sweep through as the destroyer and cash in on what is rightfully his at any time he wants, okay? This is the God of the Bible, you know, for better or for worse, this is who we have here. But he's also, in the very next breath, a God of, of love and compassion who was willing to give up His one and only son, right? The thing that Abraham didn't end up having to do and give up Isaac, God 
willingly chooses to do in giving up his one and only son, the thing that is most precious to him, most valuable to him, he offers his son for us. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? And if he was willing to not even spare his own son, he would give us anything. This is, this is a God who is, is both the destroyer and, and the one who gives his one and only son. And one more thing, who's on the cross? Jesus. Or now let me put it another way. Who's on the cross? God is on the cross, right? God is on the cross, So when you think of God, you have to think of the destroyer who can sweep through Egypt and claim what's rightfully his. You have to think of this loving father who loves us and is willing to give us the most amazing thing. And when you think of God, you have to think of a first century Jewish carpenter who is is dying on a cross for the life of the world. Okay, That's, that's a really big God, terrifying, awesome, holy, beautiful, glorious vulnerable, loving, and endlessly self-giving. This is who our God is. And this is this beautiful plan of redemption that is so messy and bloody, but it's precisely the solution this really dark world needs. And it's the solution that every single one of us needs because there is no distinction. Right? And so we have an opportunity today to be reminded of something that most of us know, that this is this really remarkable God and his remarkable plan for this remarkably broken world. So let me do this. Let me me pray for us right now, and then we're going to celebrate communion together, and I'll say a couple words um, before we do that. Let me pray. Father, today we, we uh, gather as your body, as Rob said, to ponder such foundational truths, the truths that you are holy and that you can lay claim to every human life whenever you want, uh, the truth that we are not holy, <laughs> and there's no distinction among us in that regard, and that our lives are forfeit, that every moment of our lives, is, we're on borrowed time as an act of sheer grace. And the truth that you love us, you truly, you just, you really delight in us, you love us, and you've provided um, the solution through the death of your own son. And that we, even this morning, can find shelter, protection, safety in the blood of your son. That, that, That you have spilled his blood as a substitute for us. And that we can experience the the relief, the freedom, the forgiveness, simply by putting our trust in what you've done in him, apart from anything we ever do. So, Lord, I pray as as we celebrate communion today, that the gospel would be made real to us in some fresh way, that your spirit would be moving among us reminding us not just of our sin, not just of your holiness, but of your, your sweet solution, your, your forgiving grace in our lives, Lord. Once and for all through Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.
Well, I think communion is the obvious uh, conclusion to this, this gospel theme today. And I, I want to say one more thing about the passage. Um, I don't know if you notice it, but there's, there's a real clear theme of remembrance in, in the way that chapter 12 is, is written. Um, it's almost, it's clear it's written from hindsight. Uh, the person wasn't writing in real time when it happened, right? They're writing it years later, of course. All these events were written years later after they have celebrated some Passovers. And you, you can feel just even the, the, the history of what the Passover will mean, even as this is written. But look at what, all sorts of things are being marked out as, this is something I want you to remember. So look at, if you want to look, verse, verse 1, uh, or verse 2, it says, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So new calendar for Israel, okay? Now we're going to have, our calendar is going to start with our birth as a nation, our redemption day. The first month will start in that month where we were redeemed out of Egypt. And then if you look at verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. And what what Passover was was a seven-day annual festival, okay? No work for, seven, for, a, for a whole week. First day of the festival is a solemn feast. The last day is a solemn feast. And it's, just, it's marked out as, a, as a, day of rem, uh, a, a week of remembrance. And then, of course, you get all these kind of specific instructions about what you're to eat. Eat the lamb, eat the bitter herbs, eat the uh, unleavened bread, even what you're supposed to wear, right? You're supposed to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, right? You're reminded that you had to eat that first meal in haste. So all these instructions on how you're supposed to do this. And verse 26 says then, uh, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? And tell them this is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. All that to say, all these memory devices, because you need to remember your redemption. You need to rem- remember your story. Let me give you one quote. Uh, this is from a, a commentator, Christopher Wright. He said, they needed to be shaped again and again by the story that had first shaped them. They needed to hear, to tell and hear again the story they were in, the story of God and God's people, and then live in light of that. And then I love, I think I have one more. Yeah. The road to renewal and restoration for us has to be the road of remembrance. Right? For even as Christians, we so easily forget the story we are in. And that's what communion's about. It is, it is a remembrance of the story that we're in. And so, um, let me just say, I said it earlier, but we haven't had a chance to take communion. There's a couple obvious reasons in the world why this hasn't been possible as much the last couple years. Um, but we're really excited to be able to do that again. We want to do it more regularly. We want it to be more a central part of the service when we do it, just so you know that's our heart and intent. And that's just been delayed for time for obvious reasons. Um, but this is, this is the way that we remember the story that we're in. This is, we share a meal. It's not a full um, seven-day festival. But what happens in that upper room, as I mentioned, is um, Jesus was celebrating a Passover meal with his disciples. Passover meal, some of you have uh, celebrated a Seder, right? There's unleavened bread at different times where you break it. And at one point in that meal, Jesus broke the bread, and he said, now, now when you do this, I want you to, to think of this, I want you to think of me, because this bread ultimately represents my body that's been broken for you. So do this in remembrance, right, of me. And there's four cups 
uh, four cups of wine that go around the Seder. It's a really fun time, as you can imagine. Um, and on one of those cups of wine, Jesus says, you know, this cup is my blood uh, that was shed for you. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so that's, that's what we do here. We do this to remember the, the story we're in, remember our redemption day at the cross. And so um, what we have, we have five tables up here. We've got little cups for the, we've got the, the crackers up here. And um, whenever you want, okay? But we, we, um, we've got three songs. There's plenty of space, so you can take your time. And really what we want this to be is just a, a time of response. We've just been reminded of kind of just the basics of the gospel, and it's really easy to forget that. And we want to remember the story we're in. We want to remember our Lord. So um, come when you're ready. Take your time. Um, let this be a time of confession. Remind yourself there's no distinction between me and the worst sinners I can think of. Uh, let this be a time of fellowship with Jesus. He invites you to a meal, to a table. It's not a full meal, but... Imagine having a meal with Jesus. Uh, time to look around and notice the body of Christ that is here. This is not something we do by ourselves. We do it, we do it together. Uh, and take time to give thanks and to, um, to put your trust in Jesus. I, especially if you walked in here this morning with a lot of guilt, with a lot of shame. Um, this is such a sweet opportunity to have the grace of God just wash over you. And the love of Jesus who sacrificed him for you. Let sacrifice himself for you, just wash over you. So if you have put your trust in Jesus, this table is for you, regardless of how you walked in to this room this morning. So let's celebrate, let's sing, let's take and eat and drink and remember that the Lord is good.